All right, so this morning we're going to continue to look at the English reformer, William Tyndale. Um, if you didn't bring your note sheet back from last week, um, there are some note sheets on the table there uh, in the back. And as I mentioned in my prayer, particularly we're going to be looking at, at Tyndale's theology. Last week we just kind of wanted to do a big overview of his life and just look at uh, just a very busy life for Christ that he, he had. It was just a joy to kind of walk through that and see how the Lord was working um, in that situation. And, you know, when we think about William Tyndale, I think obviously the first thing that comes to mind is Bible translator, right? Um, but Tyndale was far more than that, and that's what I really want to explore this morning, this aspect of what was it that drove Tyndale to uh, see the Scripture the way that he did and see the need for that Scripture to get out to as many people um, as possible. So Tyndale was deeply concerned about the truth as it is in Jesus, about the true understanding of Scripture, a correct interpretation of that Scripture, not just the translation of it. Um, because he knew that a correct interpretation of Scripture, that it would confront the errors that he was up against from the Roman Catholic Church, and that a correct understanding of Scripture would correct her ways um, which you can see come out in, in his writings. Author Brian Edwards had this to say about uh, Tyndale. He said, Tyndale knew that the cause of the corrupt state of the church was its corrupt doctrine. And until the doctrine of the church was corrected, the abuses would continue. And then Edwards goes on to say, just kind of, pulling it back from Tyndale and looking at all the reformers, he said, on this turn the whole issue of the Reformation. The evangelical reformers were forced out of the Church of Rome, not because they could not accept the corrupt practices, but because they early discovered that the corrupt doctrines could never be changed, that their effort of seeking to bring about re reform would not happen within it, so they recognized they're going to have to break away from it um, because of the staunch defense that the Roman Catholic Church was taking. So Tyndale knew that reformation in the church would go only as far as correct doctrine would lead it. And so he was passionate about the true interpretation of the scripture. So with that, I want to look at things that Tyndale wrote um, so we can get a better understanding of where he stood on various doctrines. And uh, we'll look at this you know, broadly at, at the doctrines of grace. Um, again, a couple resources, uh, Lawson's Pillars of Grace, very helpful. Uh, John Piper's Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, book five in that series deals specifically with, with Tyndale. So first, Tyndale believed mightily in the sovereignty of God over all things. And I want to look at, at some of the things that... Um, Tyndale had to say here. Regarding, regarding the sovereignty of God, he says, God has power over all his creatures of right to do with them what he will, or to make of every one of them as he wills. God is free and no further bound than he binds himself. Right? So it's very, just very clear Tyndale thought there. The, that God, he can do all that he pleases, which is what Psalm 115.3 says. And 
we'll look at that here in just a second. So he's looking at this and he's saying the only restraints on God is God himself in accordance with his holy character and his, and his perfect will. And again, that accords with Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. I was of great conviction of the reformers. Now, one of the things, one of the other things that he wrote was regarding God's sovereignty as it relates to kings and governors. Um, and this is interesting because, again, you remember that, you know, he's not writing this in a place where um, kings and governors are friendly to him <laughs> at this point. He's writing this in the midst of them seeking his life to silence him. And he has this to say about God's rule over that. He says, God has all tyrants in his hand and does not let them do whatever they wish, but only as much as he appoints them to do. What comfort that would be as you're being pursued by those <laughs> tyrants that are seeking your life to, to silence you is that nothing is going to happen to me other than what God has ordained to happen to me. So Tyndale could stand upon that. And again, where, where does he get this? He gets it from the scriptures as he's reading, as he's reading the scriptures. He's, he's seeing this. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, right? That's the, that's the confidence and the comfort that Tyndale could have as he's being pursued by these tyrants. So God raises up one ruler and lowers another. And Tyndale recognized that these divinely appointed leaders do only as God directs them to do. And that's what was enabled him uh, to not be constantly fearful um, in the midst of this pursuit. Okay, so just a few thoughts there of what he felt about the sovereignty of God. Tyndale also believed mightily in total depravity. Um, he was strongly convinced of this biblical doctrine as he gave himself to the study of God's word and just stood shoulder to shoulder with the other reformers on this issue of total depravity. And, and more importantly, again, not only was he standing shoulder to shoulder with these other reformers, but again, his convictions are growing out of the word of God as he gives himself to the study of it. Uh, he's seeing this in other writings from Luther, for example, but he's seeing it mainly as he looks at the scripture and these other guys are pointing back to scripture. And that was one of the wonderful things about the reformers was they weren't coming up with all these new ideas and putting them down as their own words. What they're doing is they're constantly referring one another back to the word of God. So as you're reading through these reformers, this guy's pointing to Scripture, and then this guy's like, hey, I agree with Luther because Luther agrees with the Word, <laughs> right? And so there's this constant trace back. That's a good reminder for us as well, is that whatever we're reading, we're making sure that it's being brought forth from the truth of Scripture. So one of the things that Tyndale affirmed was that the sin of Adam brought about the ruin of the human race. And he writes this about that. It says, the fall of Adam has made us heirs of the vengeance and wrath of God and heirs of eternal damnation and has brought us into captivity and bondage under the devil. Okay. 
So when Adam sinned, Tyndale held, all mankind sinned in him and hence became subject to the judgment of God. And then I loved how Tyndale kind of illustrated this. This is one of the things about um, the Reformers, the Puritans. They were so good at using analogies um, and bringing about doctrinal truths and laying them out in different ways for us to think about uh, these things. Uh, Tyndale described uh, the original sin that we've uh, inherited, or that original sin, as the poison. He called it the poison of original sin. And watch, watch this analogy that he uses here. He says, as a serpent, yet young or yet unbrought, unbrought forth, so still in its mother's womb, is full of poison and cannot afterward but bring forth the fruits thereof. And as a snake is hated of man, not for the evil that it has done, but for the poison that is in it and hurt which it cannot but do. So we by nature, he means here, are hated of God for that natural poison which is conceived and born with us before we do any outward evil. I thought that was such a great analogy. How, you know, you see that snake and you're like, it hasn't done anything to me yet, but I know what's in it. <laughs> and I know what it will do if I get close to it. And so Tyndale uses that analogy and he says uh, that that's how we're viewed of God because of this inherent uh, sinful nature that we have uh, from, from Adam. So even before a person commits any actual sin, he's justly under God's wrath because of the inward inclination uh, of his heart. Tyndale further elaborates on this. I'll have somebody read this if you wouldn't mind. It's a couple, couple slides here. By nature, through the fall of Adam, are we the children of wrath, heirs of the vengeance of God by birth, yes, and from our conception. And we have our fellowship with damned devils, under the power of darkness and rule of Satan, while we are yet in our mother's wombs. And though we do not show the fruits of sin as soon as we are born, yet we are full of the natural poison, whereof all sinful deeds spring cannot but sin outwards, be we ever so young, as soon as we are able to work, if occasion be given, for our nature is to do sin, as is the nature of a serpent to sin. Very good, yeah. So I think Tyndale, you know, really did uh, just a great job of, of illustrating that and bringing, bringing these truths out um, of how we felt towards those uh, that issue particularly of, of total depravity. Um, he, he goes on to talk about how man by nature cannot do anything to please God. He says this, Whatsoever we do, think, or imagine is abominable in the sight of God. For we can do nothing unto the honor of God. Neither is there any power in us to follow the will of God, then in a stone to ascend upward of his own will. The text is plain. We were stone dead and without life or power to do or consent to good. So, again, very, very instructive. And again, remembering 
these brothers writing within, you know, five or ten years after Luther comes out with his, his 95 theses, um, it's just, again, encouraging to see this isn't how the church was thinking. You know, uh, again, this is how we think now, but this is not at all how the church was, was thinking about these issues. And so these, these brothers are giving themselves to the study of God's word and they're penning all these things. Now we're looking back at them and saying, yeah, amen. Yeah, that's, of course that's right. <laughs> but that's not what they were saying uh, during this, this time. Hence the reason that Ten, Tyndale was being uh, chased down, not only for his desire to translate the word of God, but these things that he was publishing, these writings that he was, that he was publishing. He goes on a little bit further here and says, The devil is our Lord and our ruler, our head, our governor, our prince, and yea, our God. And our will is locked and knit faster unto the will of the devil than could a hundred thousand chains bind a man unto a post. <laughs> you, just, you just think about that, right? And Tyndale brings that out in such a vivid such a vivid way, again, to show our natural condition and, and what that looks like. Um, and so, again, you know, if you, if you remember with um, Erasmus, uh, one of the guys within the Roman Catholic Church, although he did, um, you know, some good with his Greek New Testament, um, he and Luther went back and forth on the will of man, Erasmus, the, the freedom of the will. Luther responds with the bondage of the will. Um, and so you see Tyndale locking arms here with Luther saying, no, absolutely, this is, this is true. Our will is bound. We're not free uh, in any sense in, in that way. And Tyndale would also say that, that man is so depraved that he cannot see his need for grace. I can have somebody. Well, I must have forgot to put that one. Let me just read that for you then. He says this, we are, as it were, asleep in so deep blindness that we can neither see nor feel what misery, thraldom, and wretchedness we are in. And you just think about the truthfulness of that statement. When you were an unbeliever, you didn't understand the depth of your depravity. <laughs> you may have understood, yeah, hey, I'm not as good as that guy or you know, this person over here, but I'm not what the Bible's describing me as. You know, one who's following after Satan and all these things. That's those really weird people over there. They're the ones who are, who are doing that, not, not me. And, and to Tyndale's point, based on his study of Scripture, is that that's how deep our blindness is, that we can't see the condition that we are in by nature until God, in his grace, awakens us and shows us the truth of who we are apart from him. And Tyndale would teach also that the fallen human race is in bondage to Satan to do his bidding, as I mentioned there. Um, in accordance with 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, if somebody wants to read that for us. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. They will defeat, they endure endure evil, correcting Okay, so yeah, that last verse 26 there, after being captured by him to do his will. You may 
remember the uh, exchange that Jesus had with the religious leaders in John chapter 8 as well, as he's going back and forth with them and telling them if you were, of, if your father was Abraham, uh, here's how you would be responding to me, but you are of your father, the devil. And um, that didn't go over too well with them. Uh, but, but Jesus was declaring that, that that's, that's who we are as we come into this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2 uh, tells us. So Tyndale had a very clear understanding as he studied the word of God, as he's, as he's getting these writings, in particular Luther's writings, he's understanding the condition of the human race. And uh, John Piper noted this in his book, Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ. He said, this view of human sinfulness set the stage for Tyndale's grasp of the glory of God's sovereign grace in the gospel. And, and that's, that's what happens. Not only do we believe in the doctrines of grace, but the order of, of the doctrines of grace, right? The total depravity, as we see our total depravity, we recognize the only hope we have is that God in his great mercy would elect us. That's my only hope, because there's nothing good in me, and I deserve nothing but the wrath of God. Uh, and so that leads us into Tyndale's view here of sovereign election. He was convinced that God, on his own accord, acting in eternal, unconditional love, chose a people out of fallen humanity to be his own possession. And he says this, predestination and salvation are clean taken out of our hands and put in the hands of God only. For we are so weak and so uncertain that if it stood in us, there would of a truth be no man saved. Right? Recognize that reality uh, that if it were left to us in any way, none of us would turn to Christ. It goes on to say in another writing that it was not based on any supposed foreseen choice of God by man, as some would teach. It says this, God chose them first, the elect, and not they, God. Uh, right? So, so he's countering that mentality that um, you know, God's looking into the future. In eternity past, God looks into the future and sees who's going to receive him. And on the basis of that reception, he then elects them uh, prior to that. And Tyndale was vehemently opposed to that, that it was nothing but God's goodwill that he chose us because of our natural condition. We don't have the propensity to lean toward God or to choose him, but to hate him and to turn away from him. So Tyndale says further, in Christ, God chose us and elected us before the beginning of the world, created us anew by the word of the gospel and put his spirit in us that we should do good works. And I just loved the uh, ordo salutis, so to speak, the order of salvation that you just see in this one statement here by Tyndale of election born again, spirit within us, and then good works following that. Um, so, you know, I think for me, like one of the things that has been so encouraging as I've been studying, you know, Tyndale over the last couple of weeks is, man, just how theologically sound this brother really was. And I have to admit that my own understanding of Tyndale prior to this point was, yeah, he stood up against the Catholic Church and, you know, he was vehement to get the Bible translated into the, um, the language of the common people there in England. 
Um, but I didn't understand the depth of theological conviction and knowledge that, that he had. Um, not that I should be surprised by that, but I was never confronted really with his writings and how he felt about these, about these things. So I hope that's doing it in your heart as well, that you're seeing him much more than just a, a man that was zealous to get the Bible translated. He was zealous because of what he knew about the Bible and what he knew about this God uh, that he was learning of in the scriptures. So Tyndale holds that all saving grace is traced back to the sovereign choice of God unto salvation. Again, remembering that the Roman Catholic Church maintained that a man's free will is the cause why God chooses one and not another. And Tyndale says that's contrary to all scripture. Um, He says that Paul said that it comes not from the will nor of deed, but of the mercy of God. And Tyndale there was referring to Romans chapter 9. So he's, he's affirming that Roman Catholics believe in the free will of man, but, but Protestants affirm the sovereign will of God. Tyndale, in agreement with the scriptures, would affirm that the father chose his elect as a gift for his son, whom his son would come and redeem at the proper time. So he states this here, if I can have somebody read that for us. Amen. Thank you. So, again, just this affirmation that the elect were chosen by God before time to know Christ and to be uh, his prized possession. He also acknowledged that not all of those in the professing church are of the elect, right? So he's dealing with the visible and the invisible church there, um, that just because people are in the congregation does not mean they are of the elect. Uh, he understood that many are called to salvation, but only those who are chosen by God form the true church. And I love the way that he, he states this. He said, there shall be in the church a fleshly seed of Abraham and a spiritual, a Cain and an Abel, an Ishmael and an Isaac, an Esau and a Jacob. As I have said, a worker and a believer. Worker meaning somebody who's trusting in works to make them right with God. A great multitude of them that be called and a small flock of them that be elect and chosen. So he had a very good understanding that just because people were in the church didn't mean that they were of Christ. Um, So it was only comprised of the, the total number of the believing elect. Though many contend that election, right, we've probably heard this before in in conversations, that election, it's a dangerous doctrine. Um, It's to be feared. You limit God. You're distorting, you know, the love of God when you talk this way. Um, Tyndale actually viewed it as we ought to view it, and that is that it actually emboldens the preacher and the proclamation of the gospel. Um, Because once you understand total depravity and that all men are in this condition, your only hope is that through the preaching of the gospel, God will awaken some to hear the truth 
as it is in Jesus. And so he explains it this way. He says, when Christ is preached, the hearts of them which are elect and chosen begin to wax or grow soft and melt at the bounteous mercy of God. Isn't that a great way to put it? I really enjoyed just meditating on that, the bounteous mercy of God. And so, again, I I love his view here. It's that when Christ is preached, right? So an understanding of election doesn't weaken your fervency for evangelism. It ignites it. It ought to. Right? And that's what it did for, for Tyndale. He understood the word of God must be proclaimed because as the word are proclaimed, the elect, the chosen, who have not yet come to salvation will do so only as the word of God is proclaimed to them. So God's sovereign election, Tyndale looked at this and said, he, he would say that it undergirds the success of the gospel enterprise and that they will respond as the word of God goes forth. I think I might have, oh no, I did it in another place. Okay, never mind. Let me, let me back up on that one. Um, yeah, so that's, that's Tyndale's, Tyndale's view of, the, of election. And again, there's a lot more uh, to that. Um, just a few things that Lawson pulled out in, in his book. Um, again, David Danielle's book, if you're looking for something more full on, on Tyndale there, but hopefully just those few things. You can see Tyndale's view of uh, total depravity and also unconditional election. Tyndale also held that faith is not something that is innate within man, that it is a gift that God gives to men. It's not something that man brings to the table in order to cooperate with God and say, you've brought me the gospel, I bring my faith, I believe it, and now I'm saved. It's that the, the faith that God requires rides on the proclamation of the gospel as it, as it comes to the elect and makes them born again. So Tyndale would see that election being inseparably linked with that gift of faith, that irresistible call of the Spirit, that all whom the Father has chosen are divinely brought to saving faith in Christ. And again, that's a work that God must do because man is dead in sin and can't choose to believe the gospel. Uh, Before anyone can believe, Tyndale said this, The Spirit must first come and wake him out of his sleep with the thunder of the law and fear him, that is God, and show him his miserable estate and wretchedness and make him abhor and hate himself and to desire help and then comfort him again with the pleasant reign of the gospel. Great way to put it. But I love that, what he says there, the spirit must first come, right? In honor of R.C. Sproul, right, as we, as we look at this, that regeneration precedes faith, right? That you must be born again first in order to believe what you're hearing and you're awakened as the gospel comes forth. Now, that happens virtually simultaneously, but there is importance to that 
to that order. And I can just still remember R.C. at those conferences saying that regeneration precedes faith, just hammering that, hammering that home. And again, R.C. was simply looking back at what the Reformers were saying, who were looking back at what the Scriptures were saying. And R.C. was obviously looking at the Scriptures as well. So, but that, that, that's important to, to see that. And Tyndale actually elaborates on that a little bit further. Somebody want to read that for us? These are Tyndale's words here. Now note, note now the order. First God gives me light to see the goodness and righteousness of the law and my own sin and unrighteousness, out of which knowledge springs repentance. Then the same Spirit works in my heart trust and confidence to believe the mercy of God and His truth, that He will do as He has promised with belief, which belief saves me. Okay, good. So there, there you have justification by faith alone, right? So faith, yes, that's necessary, but that faith comes as a gift uh, from God. And so Tyndale, very important here that the order was uh, correct, um, so again, just so encouraging as you look back at these guys who are developing their theology, they're breaking away from this system of false doctrine and they're putting pieces together and locking them all up. And, you know, here we are, beneficiaries 500 years later or so, and, and uh, we're saying amen to these truths that they wrestled with and sought to, to get right. So this sovereign work of the Spirit brings the elect sinner to faith in Christ. Um, and again, the spiritual awakening known as regeneration or the spiritual birth. Uh, Tyndale said it's a sovereign work of God in the spiritually dead soul of the lost sinner. Uh, he kind of elaborates on that. He says, we are in our second birth, God, it should be God's, God's workmanship and creation in Christ. So that as he which is yet unmade has no life or power to work, no more had we till we were made again in Christ. And again, he's refuting this, this reality that Rome, or this false reality that Rome has tried to bring forth, that somehow we cooperate with God through this life of faith, and that ultimately our justification will come at the end of our lives uh, as God looks back on his work in our lives, but also our faithfulness uh, to him. Where the reformers are looking at this and saying, no, we, we must be born again, no good works are coming out of that until we are made again in Christ, until we, are, until we are born again. So Tyndale strongly denied that the sinner has anything to do with his regeneration. Uh, and that's, that's important. He says this, The will has no operation at all in the working of faith in my soul. No more than the child has in the begetting of his father. For Paul said, it is the gift of God and not of us. And just interesting how he says this, right? So just as he's looking and saying the child doesn't cause the conception of his father or even of himself, an unsaved person does not initiate his salvation. That work is done in him alone by the power of God. You had nothing to do with your first birth, and you don't have anything to do with your, your second birth. Now, the results of that first birth are evident. You come forth, you cry, you long, so on and so forth, and such will be the results of your second birth. 
you'll cry and you'll long for, for God and to be delivered uh, from our sinful state. So when a sinner is regenerated by the Spirit, Tyndale taught he then believes on Christ through faith. And again, this faith is a gift from God. He elaborates on that a little bit further in another writing. If somebody wants to read that for us. True faith is the gift of God that is given to sinners after the law has passed upon them and has brought their consciousness unto the brim of desperation and sorrows of hell. Faith springs not of man's fantasy, neither is it any man's power to obtain, but is altogether the pure gift of God, poured unto us freely without all manner of doing, all manner of doing of us. Amen. Amen. So again, Tyndale saying this in a, in a bunch of different ways, this reality that uh, this, this saving faith, um, he says elsewhere, is, is a mighty in operation, full of virtue and ever working in us. And this gift of faith works a great change in those to whom it is given. And then one more on this. Um, Let's go into this one. He says, Of the whole multitude of the nature of man whom God has chosen and to whom he has appointed mercy and grace in Christ, to them sends he his spirit. And then watch what he says here. The spirit opens their eyes, shows them their misery, and brings them unto the knowledge of themselves so that they hate and abhor themselves. Right? And amen. <laughs> right? You, you think about that. Uh, and that ongoing reality that we still see uh, you know, with, within our hearts. Let me see if I have... When, when his word is preached, I love how he says this, when his word is preached, faith roots herself in the hearts of the elect. The power of God looses the heart from captivity and bondage under sin. And again, that, that connection there, that the preaching of the word is necessary, right? When his word is preached, faith roots herself in the hearts of the elect. Not a great way to say it. And, you know, again, you think of Romans 10, 17. I think I might have put this in here. Let's see if I did. Yep. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, again, this is very instructive for us. And, again, as these brothers are, are looking back at the scripture, as they're studying it, these are truths that they're seeing. So faith, it's not there in the person and then is ignited as the word comes. Faith comes, right? So as the gospel comes out of your mouth, faith is riding on that gospel proclamation and goes into the heart of God's people and awakens truth within them, enables them to, to see. So it's a gift that God gives to us. It enables us to hear the word and to believe it. And the result from that, as Tyndale says here, is that we are set free from our sinful ways. So one other, one other aspect here um, is on the, and just a couple things on this, preserving uh, grace or persevering grace, preservation of the saints, however you want to say it. But what we want to drive at here is it's that God is preserving us, right? And he's going to do so all the way uh, to the end. And again, this is contrary to what Rome was teaching, is that you can, you can be a genuine believer and then you can fall away from that and you can lose your salvation. 
and be eternally damned. And so the reformers are coming back and they're saying, no, if you're a true believer, God is going to carry you. He who began that good work, he's going to complete it all the way to the end. So he affirmed, Tyndale affirmed very clearly that no elect believer will lose his salvation. All who truly repent and trust Christ will never fall from grace. He says this, God's elect cannot so fall that they rise not again, because that the mercy of God ever waits upon them to deliver them from evil as the care of a kind father waits upon his son to warn him and to keep him from occasions and to call him back again if he be gone too far. Uh, what, what a great way to illustrate that. Uh, but you see that truth again throughout uh, the scriptures. Uh, Tyndale recognizing here believers who stumble and fall in life, which all of us do on various levels, um, will be sustained by the grace of God. That we will not fall away totally, which our confession talks about uh, as well. That we can sin grievously against God, but not unto the point of apostasy, of turning away. Because it is God's grace that started this, and it is God's grace that will finish that. And that's in accord with Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. On, on your best days of being a Christian and on your worst days of being a Christian. <clears throat> Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One last thing here that Tyndale said reg regarding preserving grace. Life eternal and all good things are promised unto faith and belief, so that he that believes on Christ shall be safe. And again, that's a good word to conclude on when, when we think about the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church and them saying, here are all the hoops that you need to jump through in order to assure that you will make it to the end, that you'll be safe in the end. And the Reformers are looking back and they're saying, Put all of your faith and trust in Christ alone and you can be assured you'll be safe on that day. And if you look to any other source, you can be assured you won't be safe on that day. For it is only in Christ that God is pleased with us. You may remember Tyndale's uh, final words or what they say was his final words. Anybody remember what those were at his execution there, Sabrina? Amen. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And God did ultimately answer that prayer. I love the way that Lawson finishes out his, uh, his look at Tyndale. I'm going to read just little excerpts from this. Uh, but Lawson looks at how in the year that Tyndale was martyred in 1536, there were already two translations of the Bible that were circulating that flowed out of Tyndale's work that Tyndale was apparently not aware of. Uh, one of them was the Coverdale Bible. Uh, you may remember Miles Coverdale, who was a uh, classmate with Tyndale at Cambridge. He was one of the guys that was within that, that White Horse Inn group that we, we talked about um, last week. Coverdale was also the one that, remember after uh, Tyndale uh, was on the ship, ship shipwrecked, <laughs> 
and he lost all of his translation work of the Pentateuch. Um, he got together with Coverdale, and they put the Pentateuch, uh, they translated it back together. And then the other translation was, um, came from a guy, John Rogers. This version was known as the Matthews Bible. So those two were in circulation. But a year, less than a year after Tyndale's death, um, Thomas Cranmer, who had become the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Thomas Cromwell persuaded King Henry VIII to officially approve the publication of an English Bible. And Henry saw the Coverdale Bible, and this is what he said, if there be no heresies in it, then let it be spread abroad among all the people. That was less than a year after Tyndale was executed. That, that, that happened. September 1538, so this was within two years. Remember, Tyndale again was uh, executed October 1536, so September 1538, the king issued a decree that a copy of the Bible in English and in Latin should be placed in every church in England. Less than two years after Tyndale was executed. Uh, what, what just an awesome reality of seeing God's sovereign hand. And again, those two permissible copies that were allowed were the Coverdale Bible and the Matthew Bible. And as these printed English Bibles became accessible to the common man, you may remember what Tyndale said to the priest at, as he was uh, dialoguing with him in Sir John Walsh's manner that he would cause a, a plowboy to know more of the scriptures than, than he did. Than this, than this priest did. And certainly, uh, Lawson notes this. He says, Tyndale's plowman was at last reading, discussing, living, and proclaiming the truths of the Bible among his relatives and friends. And how grateful we are. We're beneficiaries of the work of William Tyndale. Uh, the, the King James Version of the Bible, authorized 1611, if, you've, if you grew up on that, or if you've been exposed to that, 80 to 90%, so 8 or 9 out of every 10 words that you read in the King James Bible is Tyndale's translation. Um, so it's a little harder to bring it over to our ESVs and NESB because the English changed, right? We don't speak the same way as they did uh, uh, back then. But we owe a great debt to William Tyndale, and we thank God for the work in his life because of the freedom that we have. We open English Bibles, and the reason that we do so is because God raised up William Tyndale to use him uh, to translate that word for us, and we are the glad beneficiaries of that. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and, and close out uh, this morning. Father, again, we thank you for the gifts that you have given to your church. And we're thankful uh, for men that you worked in, Lord, in these mighty and powerful ways that have affected, uh, in the case of William Tyndale, countless millions of people who open our Bibles each day, Father, and we read them in our language. 
and we're indebted to you, obviously, but you working through William Tyndale so that we could have the privilege of reading it in our own language. So we thank you for that, Father. May, May we treasure that. May we recognize the cost that was paid in order for this word to come to us. And so we thank you as we think back over these key figures of the Reformation that we have looked at, um, how thankful we are um, for your work in these men's lives and where we stand today some 500 years later, uh, Lord, because of the work that you did in them. Uh, We don't even recognize all the ways that we have been affected by them, uh, but we're grateful to you for them. And pray, Lord, that you would continue to use us uh, to bring about reform for the glory of your name. And so we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.